Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K., I'm Mariah Rose. Welcome back, everybody. This is a podcast about the 80s. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We discuss random events and people and movies of the 80s. If this is your, um, not your first time. <laughs> repeat re- listener. <laughs> yeah, if you're a, so bear with us on this episode because... Um, as regular listeners found out last week, we had to miss last week because uh, we got hit with the flu. Our whole house did. Oh, actually, it's kind of interesting. Three out of four of us got the flu and then one outlier got COVID. (laughs) Yeah, it was really bizarre. (laughs) But we didn't really know what anybody had. So we were all just sick and quarantining from each other. Yeah, well, then we ended up getting tested and we knew exactly what we had. But it was a nightmare for a week. It was yeah. brutal, really yeah. bad. We had put off getting our our updated vaccinations, and the Friday before this hit our family was the day we were scheduled, or the Friday we were all getting sick was we were scheduled to get our shots. Yeah. So just like two days before. And, and then we all get the flu. Blasted. If you have procrastinated, I cannot express to you enough that you should just run and go get that vaccine because um, I had the flu. You had the flu. It is. It's miserable. It's yeah, so much it really worse than suck. you think. You forget if it's been a while. You forget just how sick you are. Yeah. And also bear with us because even though we're healthy again, there's a lot of lingering effects with the flu. And both yeah. of us still have this little cough that won't go away. Yeah. And it's super obnoxious. And it's particularly obnoxious when you're trying to podcast. So we'll do our best to not cough and edit out what we do, but... uh, We can't talk about it, or I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, we've got a really fun one this week, one that we've talked about doing for a couple of years now. Yeah, I think so. And just hadn't really gotten around to it. And when we do these dives into people's biographies, as you know, it's an hour-long episode, so we do a condensed kind of cliff notes version oh sure it's somebody's whole life yeah so we'll just hit the highlights but obviously this is an 80s podcast so we'll be focusing mainly on the 80s part but it was um pretty fascinating and yeah really we just scratched the surface but i just was interested in a broad overview um, yeah those are always are, are really fun for me to learn a little bit more so this week we are getting into the one and only cindy lopper her song says girls want to have fun, and Cindy Lauper means what she sings, even to cutting up at miniature golf with a friend, comedian Pee Wee Herman. Your album is called She's So Unusual. How unusual are you? I think I'm pretty normal. I always did. See, the more I tried to fit in, though, and the thing is, finding out what normal is is so crazy because. What's normal? And is normal normal or is that crazy? And is it okay, Cindy Lauper, for those of us who grew up in the 80s, um, there is no denying her. She was an international superstar yeah. and easily identifiable. She stood out right away and made quite an impression on a lot of people. I've only met a couple people who have really strong feelings against, like they just really don't like her voice. But mm. most people I know enjoy Cindy Lauper. They thought she was fun and quirky. And, sure. And she was and is. But um, a lot of people don't really know much about her. You think her story. And- yeah, her story and what, what her passions are and stuff. So that's why we thought it would be fun to kind of dive into her 
her background and upbringing and then really how she got to where she is today because she is a pretty eccentric character. And going into this, I really didn't know anything about her. I kind of thought I did. And I mean, you can tell just listening to her talk where in the world she's from. She has a very thick accent. But other than that, I really didn't know. I'd heard like little bits and little theories, but I didn't actually know the facts of her life. Yeah. What were your first memories of Cindy Lauper? Because she's an artist similar to somebody like Ozzy or Prince, you know, that makes a pretty big impression the first time you see them or hear them. You're like, whoa, right? Wh- what is this person? And I yeah. think Cindy Lauper is definitely one of those those people. Well, for me, again, I think we always come back to it. I was pretty sheltered. But I heard her music on the radio. So it was kind of just always there because she became famous when I was like a baby. So I just kind of grew up hearing her. And then one day I saw a video. It came on right after a Boy George video. And (laughs) I was just like, what? Who are these people? I've (laughs) been hearing these songs. It kind of blew my mind. But I didn't have access to like MTV until high school yeah so i saw stuff on like vh1 in montana in the late 80s early 90s and it must have been where i first saw her and it just blew my mind of course she's fascinating to watch just you can't take your eyes off of her even if you don't like her which you're crazy but she's just fascinating to watch so what what are you i'm guessing you had more access to her um a little bit i mean she really was like one of the early darlings of mtv and Mm -hmm. you know her video we'll get into it and all that but she made quite an impression visually so i think that's what catapulted her into international stardom was not just her music and voice but really that image and now that there was this newly formed mtv platform it was perfect combination perfect storm My first impression, though, I mean, I knew her music a little bit just because she was all over the radio. And I had Mm -hmm. two older sisters that were the perfect age to to be into her music. But my first real impression of being completely fascinated and obsessed with her was The Goonies, obviously, because The Goonies is my all-time favorite movie. Yeah. And I watched that thing... All the time. I had it recorded on VHS and I would just watch it over and over and over. And she had a big hit song on on the Goonies soundtrack. And so and not only that, there's a clip of her in the Goonies movie. And so I just knew who she was because of that. And because she was associated with Goonies, she was like too cool for school. And of course, being like a young, young little dude. Um, of course, I'm going to like crush on her, too, because she's wild and she's funky and got this, you know, she's kind of like punky Brewster, but older. You know, she was mm-hmm. like this eccentric character with crazy hair and crazy clothes and this um, over the top voice. You know, how could you not be drawn to that as a as a young yeah. kid? Like a living cartoon character and a little bit of the Madonna flair. But like Madonna always struck me as mean. As a kid, I don't know Madonna, so I'm sure she's lovely, but she always seemed really like um, like she had walls up and I couldn't love her the way that Cindy seems to pull you into. You just want to love her and she just seems open and sweet, like somebody so, you'd hang out with. Yeah. Who had a cr- great voice. Yeah. Oh, well, and that's, I would say, the biggest difference between the two of them yeah. being contemporaries was <laughs> one had a pretty major voice and the other had... Uh, a voice that could get by with some pop songs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is going to be fun, though. 
Well, I think what we'll do is, like I mentioned, it's kind of a crash course okay. on, on her life and we'll just walk through it. But we'll spend really the bulk of this episode is on her time in the 80s because that is the time that she reigned supreme. Yeah. So Cindy Lauper, I know this is going to become uh, or come as a huge surprise to you. She's from New York. If you've ever heard her say anything in her Any life. Any word out of her mouth is said in the most New York way, I think. But this is more of a New York accent than French. Although some people pronounce my name Lapeur. She was born into a Catholic family, but that doesn't really mean a whole lot. Her family kind of struggled. Her father was named Fred and her mother was named Katrine. Cindy's the middle child of the family. Her older sister, Ellen, and younger brother, also named Fred, but he is called Butch. Oh, nice. I included that just because Butch. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Classic nickname from the time. Yeah. And her parents divorced when she was very young, um, but she was a music lover from an early age. I actually listened to an interview with her, and she's a nonlinear thinker, but she was talking about singing from early childhood and how she'd be crawling and singing and she would look at animals and look into their eyes and think you have eyes just like me but you have a different body and I was like (laughs) this has got weird for an interview thank (laughs) you but so music and that creativity was just a part of her life from early on and she began composing her own music and songs by age 12 so she's so did she get any kind of training as a kid? Did she Was she enrolled in any kind of classes or lessons, or is she all just self-taught? Do you know? uh, she does take lessons at later points. Actually, she still takes vocal lessons. I believe that. Yeah. So she, she didn't early because I don't think they could afford it. It was a little bit later in her life. But she was a totally unique soul from the get-go. She actually said in one interview that she was, she just kind of said, that was weird. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's true. She was really into fashion and coloring her hair with vibrant colors. So we had the punk scene happening over in England and all of that's coming to New York and influencing fashion, you know, in the late 70s. And it's also said that her eccentricity led to bullying. I mean, I could definitely zero doubt. Yeah. How could that not happen? And she was living at home, so her parents had divorced. She was still living at home when her mom remarried. And this man is abusive. He was abusive, excuse me. And it, you, I think most fans have heard that some of that spills over into her music um, later on. But this abuse led to Cindy leaving home at age 17. Okay. So she she had to leave her home. She was also expelled from high school. And in one interview I watched, she was talking about how she ended up being homeless because she couldn't sign a lease under the age of 21. So it was a really complicated situation. Her mom, like she couldn't live with her mom. Her mom was just barely getting by. So what she ended up doing was she went up to Vermont. Okay. Weirdly. So up until this point, she was still in New York. Yeah. So in New York, she couldn't get her, she couldn't get an apartment. She was too young until she was 21. So she moved up to uh, Vermont and she got in some like special housing. She got, I think this was when she was um, over 18, but she, she got into housing. She got onto welfare and she started taking advantage of some of the programs for the homeless there. And this led to her getting her GED and starting college. So she got a job. I think it was at a kennel or something. So she was working with animals, 
her life was on track. She was going to school for art. I didn't know any of, I didn't realize she was homeless at any point. And this is going to make a lot more sense later in her life. Okay. Yes. So this is all starting to come together now. Yes. So okay. she was homeless. She took advantage of some of the resources that existed at the time. And they really helped her get back on her feet. Sort of. So she starts getting this, uh, she starts going to college and getting a degree in the arts. And she's like, oh, maybe I don't want to teach art. And Mm. I (laughs) really resonated with that because I I had that that same thing. Uh, I read in an article from CTV News in which she told of a story around this time of flying to Canada and then hitchhiking with her dog. So I'm guessing the dog comes from the kennel. I can't really find the origin of the dog, but the dog was named Sparkle. So somewhere along this timeline, (laughs) this is important, she goes into the woods with Sparkle. Okay. Her dog. And I guess her plan was to find herself and study trees. Okay. Wow. I feel like this just gives you some insight into her personality. Very free spirited. Uh, I'm not sure how the dog if the dog took the flight with her or if she got it in Canada, I'm very curious and I couldn't figure it out. Anyway, um, I don't know if she actually found herself, but she probably came to better understand the trees of Canada. (laughs) 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 Just a little side story, but it kept coming up. So she eventually made her way back to the States. And this is kind of around the time she's going to college in Vermont. We're in the 70s, and she's been making music this whole time. So she was working as an artist, but she kind of realized, like, she didn't want to be an art. She wanted to be a painter, not an art teacher. Mm -hmm. And then she encountered back in New York some artists who were also being musicians. And she's like, well, I could do both. Okay. Was she part of the punk scene, or was that punk just kind of... By default, because that was the rage at the time. I think I always wondered that because obviously her image was a little punk leaning, but her her um, music never was. Well, she was coming into her own just a little behind the height of the punk scene because she's a little bit younger. So that's something to consider. But also she'd been homeless and all over the place. And while she'd been like making music and stuff, and this is where she really starts to turn a corner and become the musician that we know she'd been kind of lost and fumbling up till this point it's is now in the in the 70s here she's making music of course and she begins to perform with cover bands okay so So, that's how she got her start yeah okay so she's really not happy though covering the music of other artists but it was at this time that she heard her vocal cords and took like a year off from singing And she was actually told at one point that her singing was over for her. Like, this is it. (laughs) She hadn't even gotten started, which is crazy to think about. But um, we obviously know that's not true. And this is when she first first starts working with a vocal coach. Oh, okay. And this is like during her recovery. And this is how she gets on her way to success. So working with cover bands wasn't enough. She's ready to like find an actual band. Okay, she seemed to develop pretty fast as a vocalist. Well, she's been singing since she was 12. Right. Like, she hadn't pursued it, but she has been musical her whole life. She'd been making her own music. And this is where she's, like, she's trying things out and nothing's quite working until she finds her first real band. So we're at, like, the late 70s right now. Um, Yeah, like, the very end of the 70s when she meets her first band. It's interesting. It reminds me sort of Bjork's story where even though Cyndi Lauper wasn't a child star Mm-mm. singer, 
she already had such a uh, unique and identifiable way of singing mm-hmm. that by the time she joined her first band, it stood out. And I, you know, I think even though Bjork had an early career as a child singer, by the time she started joining early punk bands, her voice was already developed in such a unique way that it stood out right away too. So yeah. it's kind of interesting to think about some of these people who a lot of times you get started in your first band and nobody really quite knows what they're doing. But in her case, and that's why I make the comparison, is some of these people are almost fully formed by the time they join a band. It's like they've already got their own identity through their music. Well, she has her own identity through fashion, but even just listening to her talk, her voice is different and weird. Like her conversational voice is strange. Yeah. So that just carries over into her music, which makes it seem like a practice or rehearse thing. But it, I think it's natural. Like she has natural ability, but the the actual sound of her voice is so unique that it makes her seem like more fully formed than people who create their own weird, cool way of singing. Yeah. So, and this is late 70s, so she's done some cover bands, and now she's ready to start her own band. Yeah, none of the cover bands are really doing it for her. She, like, is enjoying singing and making money, but she knows. And she she tells stories, like, people ask her, did you always know you wanted to be famous? And she says, well, yes. From a very young age, she just kind of knew. And she would stand in front of her shower curtain and practice like bowing and accepting speeches because she just knew that was the track she was headed for. So I think that she didn't know necessarily what she wanted to be famous for. She just knew she was meant for it. That's interesting. I feel like that's a common thread in a lot of these biographies that we get into. With, yeah. Especially with musicians, it seems like they... A lot of them are pretty determined early at an early age to, to become something and they're not going to really stop until they achieve that yeah. goal. So she didn't, she hasn't quite struggled yet as far as music goes, but she struggled personally. Yeah. So 78, that's interesting because that's when she met a saxophone player named John Turry and they hit it off pretty quick and decided to start a band. Mm hmm. And they found a couple other people, and they started her first band that you were talking about, Blue Angel. Have you ever heard Blue Angel? A little bit. She is pretty passionate about Blue Angel. Yeah, she really was into it when it first started. And they were like this, you know, new wave band that was getting started kind of early in the scene. Definitely had the look and the sound. But what fascinates me about Blue Angel, if if nobody's listened to them, you know, go check them out. They're on Spotify and all that. Uh, Man, she stands out right away. Yeah, I mean, even though going back to the to the Bjork analogy, even though Bjork was in a couple other bands before Sugar Cubes, by the time the Sugar Cubes started, it was like you just knew you knew that no matter what, this person was destined for bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. And when you hear Blue Angel, it's like there's the band, and then there's Cindy, and it, there's really no containing yeah. that. That personality and that voice is... It's big. Yeah, it's only going to be contained for so long in a band setting. But she got started there. And it was interesting because even as they were first starting and learning songs and stuff, she was already being offered several solo deals as they were performing here and there because people were just blown away by her. And she eventually agreed to stay with the band. Her, Her whole thing was... If we're going to get signed, we'll all get signed together. I'm not going to leave you guys. That's at least how it started. Yeah. And 
they got signed by a manager to Polydor Records and put out a self-titled album in 1980. So we're in officially in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And um, this is just the beginning of her story, really. They put out the self-titled album. And even though like critics kind of dug it, it was a it was a pretty decent album. It just did not take off at all, built no traction with sales, and it just bombed pretty bad to the point of the band knew it was not even worth salvaging, and they decided to break up. Yeah. But an interesting side note from this time that's pretty important to her story is they decided to fire their manager that they had, and their manager, who was this pretty shady character, I'm guessing, came back at them and said, you can't fire me, I'm suing you all. And he successfully sued the band for $80,000. And Cindy had to go like declare bankruptcy right away. And keep in mind, she's like young at this point. It's terrifying. So now she just went from having her first record deal to being sued and bankrupt and had to immediately go back to working a day job. So she became, I think she was a waitress at like IHOP or something. Yeah. She did odd jobs here and there. She, but she also continued to sing on the side at in bars and stuff like that. She would, you know, go to random open mics and performances and just kind of continue doing that. Can you just imagine being at an open mic and that comes out? And you're like, what? She looks amazing in that voice. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly what happened. That is in 1981. So just a year later, less than really, um, a guy named David Wolf was at a bar and heard her singing and was immediately like this this person has it <laughs> they will be a star and I'm going to help make them a star and mm-hmm. so he signs her on to to manage her and ends up quickly getting her a record deal at Portrait Records which was this sub label of Epic Records so really it didn't take long for her to immediately come to the attention of several other people yeah because she just had she just had it and everybody knew somebody's got to jump on this and like get this person a deal. Yeah. And from that point, they dove straight into making a solo album. And this is where it all takes off. And like buckle up because her career goes through like the stratosphere in no time. Like she goes from being a nobody who has a, a pretty unique look and sound singing covers in bars to being one of the most recognized singers in the entire world within the span of like six months. It's Golly. insane. So we're going to 1983 because okay. this is probably the biggest year, 83, 84 of her entire yeah. life. This is when she recorded her debut solo album. She's so unusual, which if you're a Cindy Lauper fan, this is the gold standard, you know, mm-hmm. and really it's, on the top of many best of albums of all time, definitely best of the eighties albums. It was stacked with hits and it's pretty crazy. This album alone had six singles that were released from it. That's more than a few. It is. And within the very first single that came out, she immediately was like internationally known. Very first single girls just want to have fun. And nobody was ready for this at all. Because like I said, in addition to the sound, the image was accompanied by this music video, which I'm sure everybody's seen. If you've ever seen any 80s music videos, 
It had her really good friend at the time, the professional wrestler, Captain Lou Albano. He's in there, uh, a bunch of other people. And it's just this really quirky, fun video. And so that coupled with this sound, let's talk briefly about what the world saw. Sure. When all of a sudden, girls just want to have fun. The very first single comes out. You've got, like I, I mentioned, this kind of punky Brewster, Rainbow Bright type character, but more punk edge. It's you know, yeah. shaved sides, really wild, big, bright hair, really crazy clothes, um, just a larger than life persona. What's coupled with this and that we have to talk about, especially when thinking about her contemporaries of the time, is her voice. Her voice was the it factor. She had, which is pretty rare, at this point already, a four octave range voice, which is insane. Like for perspective, that's what Freddie Mercury had. You know, that's David Bowie didn't even have that. Like this is way up there. Um, and when you put that into pop music. Yeah. That's uh, that's something special. And then when you put that kind of voice and that kind of vocal range with that fun, crazy attitude, mm-hmm. it's just the perfect recipe for success. Yeah, she's a human cartoon with a beautiful voice. Yeah, and her voice is so great. I mean, f- a four octave range is wild. I mean, I don't know if you've ever really looked into other singers. and Well, like Mariah Carey. Five, I think. Yeah, Mariah's got five. Prince had a five octave. Um, most, the average singer has two to three at most. Yeah. And then you've got these people, like like I said, Freddie Mercury. Freaks and, of nature. Yeah, that, that have a much higher. There is some people that are exceptionally crazy. Uh, one of the most famous and probably one of the greatest octave ranges in kind of popular music, but I use popular lightly as um, an unlikely source, unless you're a big fan. Hmm. Mike Patton of Faith No More, who went on to do Mr. Bungle and all that kind of stuff. Um, He has a six, perfect six octave range, full too, not a half. That is (laughs) not not a half. Well, that's a big thing is like Bowie was three and a half. Mike Mike Patton (laughs) is a full six octave range which is pretty bonkers anyway going back to cindy lopper so you've got this massive voice in this tiny little crazy package Mm -hmm. that is colorful and wild and fun and that was her very first single it shot up right away to number two on the billboard hot 100 right away this is her very first outing jeez you know oh i'm interrupting just briefly she i listened to her talking about this and it reminded me like you said of bjork because she said first of all that they were making fun of her or like giving her a hard time about singing so high and how it shouldn't be a single and then she goes on to describe how she made her voice sound like a trumpet. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what you got to do. <laughs> that's how you're going to talk about your singing. Okay. Yeah, which is very Bjork-like, too. Yeah. You know, Bjork's like, I want to sound like the lava. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, so Girls Just Want to Have Fun comes out and then goes right into the second single, Time After Time which is an even bigger hit. That mm-hmm. goes to her very first number one instantly. 
number one Billboard Hot 100 and was there for 20 weeks. And that's just her second single from her first album. Wow. That's followed up by single number three, She Bop. Good grief. <laughs> just another massive hit. And then after that, my all-time favorite Cyndi Lauper song ever, All Through the Night, is her fourth single. Then you get Money Changes Everything as her fifth. And the final single from just one album alone is When You Were Mine, the Prince cover, which oh, was yeah. also a huge hit. So every one of these songs is world-renowned at this point, you know, and they were all from one album, which mm-hmm. is pretty wild when you think of it. It would... this album alone would go on to sell 16 million copies good grief yeah it also won a grammy for she got best new artist this is just her very first album and the other interesting thing is she also became at this point the very first female singer to ever have four singles that were a top five hit at the same time so they were all charting like big time wow what must that have been like for her like what even is that experience to go from having been homeless to working as a waitress within a few years to now being world renowned and totally rich. Like literally the face of pop music. I mean, oh my gosh. within a year, she's on the cover of Rolling Stone, Time Magazine, Newsweek, People, like everything. You're great. We love you. She's everywhere, winning Grammys, you know, all this kind of stuff. You so. were on food stamps five years ago. <laughs> Wild. So insane. And that's just by 1984. You know, that all happened within a year. Wow. And then by 85, as we mentioned... She recorded the single for the movie The Goonies. Mm -hmm. She was actually hired by Steven Spielberg to be the musical director for the soundtrack. So she was trying to bring in some of her friends and stuff. I think the Bengals were her friends at the time. And she was just getting everybody together. And she was asked to write and record a song. And they were looking for an artist that really kind of captured the mood of being a bit of an outcast and a Goonie idea. Mm. So she wrote Good Enough. And then... As as a fan of hers and as a fan of Goonies, like we all love that song. It's probably one of my favorite songs mm-hmm. of hers. But interestingly, not for her. Oh. She hated the song. She thought it was a horrible song. And she particularly, like the riff started right away between her and Spielberg because it was called Good Enough. And he thought, well, that doesn't really tie into the Goonies. So that's why he had it retitled as The Goonies Are Good Enough. And she felt immediately like this was a compromise on her artistic integrity she's like that's not even the name of the song has nothing to do with that and he said well this is what's going to sell and so that already started problems and then the music video was a problem and what is interesting i did not know any of this is um what brings us to our fun fact of the week yay So, as I mentioned, Cindy was not a fan of the Goonies song. Mm-hmm. And I just discovered this <laughs> so much so that she hated it so much, she stopped performing it in 1987 to never perform it anymore. Okay. And refused to have it included on any release at all beyond that one little 45 and the soundtrack. Whoa. Until 2003 was the first time it ever appeared on one of her like best of her recordings. And it's basically because she gave in 
to fans demanding. Like it's one of our and keep in mind, this is wild too. It was still a top ten hit. Oh, like weird. she still had another hit with it. She just was so against it. She didn't even perform it live until 2004 was the first time she performed it live since 87. Wow. Isn't that weird? I think since then she's really come around and accepted that, okay, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. But I did not know that because for me growing up, the Goonie song was like a huge part of her her career. Yeah. I didn't know the whole behind the scenes thing that she wow. did not like that song at all. All right. Now we're cooking with gas. <laughs> well, you really said that with conviction. All right. Now we're cooking with gas. Better, better. It's hard because I don't want to start coughing. So I can't use too much enthusiasm. Although I did want to point out here. Um, I forgot to mention it earlier. Cindy is spelled different. Oh, yeah. The I and the Y are switched. I think they would know that if they saw the name of this episode. Well, I'm going <laughs> to okay. admit something embarrassing. I read it and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. All right. I guess I just never really thought about it. Or maybe I just accepted it and didn't give it one thought or another. But if she made that choice, it wasn't her mom's name. A of course friend, she made that choice. A friend suggested it so she could be more unique. Okay, so back to Cooking with Gas. She releases True Colors in 1986. And it makes its debut at number 42. So kind of started a little back there. But peaked at number four on the Billboard charts. So yeah, it, it did well. Still did well, but it is a departure from She's So Unusual. Yeah, it didn't explode in quite the same way. And it doesn't have the same vibe to it, no. really. It is a more mature album, I'll say that. You know, it is a kind of a deeper bit of songwriting. And keep in mind, on the first album, I think five of those songs were covers or something. So Yeah, I was know. really surprised how, how little she writes. I mean, she does write... But there's a lot of covers and co-writing in her career, which is fine. She's a collaborator. Yeah. Like a true collaborator. And she brings her own voice and her own artistry, but she definitely works with others. And it's interesting that you mentioned the maturity. I watched an interview with her from when she was like very first famous. It was insanity and chaos. Like she didn't make any sense. She was like really playing it up like hamming it hamming it up for the camera like being so un- unusual and then you watch an interview with her later like nowadays as a mature woman and you can go yes she's still like a non-linear thinker her conversation jumps all over the place but she's much more tempered much more thoughtful and even than uh, it appeared in her early career part of that was immaturity because she was just a very young woman but it was a lot of show, too. I think that underneath was a very calculating, very intelligent woman. But you don't see that in the early interviews. Yeah, or in her public persona, because we didn't even mention, but at the same time of she's so unusual going into true color, as most boys my age would have remembered, um, she was all over the WWF, too, because yeah. she was friends with all of them. And yeah. I remember that as a kid because I was a huge fan of wrestling, seeing Cindy Lauper, you know, at the side of the ring and with Hulk and everything else as her bodyguard. And it was just it was part of her persona early on. Yeah, they were in her music videos with her. And those crossovers were such an 80s thing, though. Like you see it with Mr. T and stuff. Just yeah. Everybody 
like intermingling in weird super groups and whatever team ups. But you would see that, you know, yeah. so when she's not singing or in these videos, she's in a wrestling ring, you know, like, like how so are it you just spending added your private to the like, <laughs> overall craziness. Yeah. Uh, you know, so she did have quite a strange persona when she very first came out. And yeah, by true colors, even, even though this is only two years later, she really has grown a lot. And as, as you would expect after touring the world and, having all this experience, you're ready to kind of bring something new to the table. Yeah. And, and interesting that you mentioned that because really, really early on in her career, they sent her over to Asia where they were hoping she'd break big. And she just talked about how transformative that experience was and how, how the people in Japan and leader China reacted to her and how it just like opened up her world in a way that hadn't been before. I can't imagine, like I said earlier, just what a mind shift in just such a small amount of time. It's no surprise that the second album is showing more maturity because she's just had, like she's been through it. Yeah, for sure. So True Colors is her second studio album. It had a run of pretty successful singles, most notable True Colors. The album was generally well received. She she got two Grammy nominations for it. So it's not like she's doing badly. It's just she did so well on her yeah, first time. It's kinda out. like there was gonna be no way to top that regardless. Yeah. But this album it would go on to be her second best selling album, sold over seven million copies. So it's not Yeah. <laughs> you've heard the album. You know it. It's great. The same year she wrote the lyrics for and duetted with 80s royalty, Billy Joel. Okay. Uh, is on the song Code of Silence. I know, we're like, what is that? But in the 80s, Billy Joel was like, I don't know, something that people's dads liked. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> we took one road trip where we listened to a weird amount of Billy Joel in like the early 2000s. Yeah, he's a... Uh... I mean, he had some good songs. He, he was a good songwriter. <laughs> you know his whole album, like a discography. Yeah, he's just a problematic character on his own. Oh, so yeah, that's later. Kind of dug his own grave with that one. She also sang the theme song for Pee Wee's Playhouse, but she's not credited as herself. She's credited as Ellen Shaw. Oh, I didn't know if you knew that. I was going to do a bonus um, fun fact if you didn't. Oh, sorry. I yeah, she does the like Betty Boop Pee Wee's Playhouse yeah. theme. Yeah, I She didn't... was worried that that was going to interfere with her career doing a kids show when she's trying to be the serious artist oh that's funny because she goes on to do more kids stuff yeah of course but at the time that's why she used a different name but yeah a lot of people speculated that it was her for years but didn't have it confirmed until way way later i think she wrote a book and that's when she finally admitted yeah, yeah i was the voice of Wee's playhouse so so she also had an HBO concert special, which an HBO concert special in the 80s was like a big deal. <laughs> big deal. Do you remember the HBO little magazines that would come? They were like the size of essentially a CD cover. I don't know. Oh. My parents got free HBO when we moved to the small town in Montana because they're they knew people who owned the cable company, which they ran out of the basement of their house and their house was tiny, but they hooked my parents up with HBO free for a year, which my parents very conservative did not want, but then they felt obligated to buy it for the rest of the time we lived there. <laughs> nice. And we'd get the little pamphlets and I would always be scandalized because real sex was in there. And I was like, do my parents like watch porn? Is that what's happening? Oh, that was like a classic, uh, crack dealer move where 
They, yeah, they gave him a little bit for free to get him hooked and then just build him for the rest. Well, they weren't hooked. They didn't even want it. And I don't even think they watched it, but they just continued to pay for it because they're so polite. So did you see her special on HBO? No. Oh, okay. No. I didn't. I wasn't allowed to watch HBO. <laughs> <laughs> Except for I think I maybe saw the electric grandmother on there. Okay. Cindy Lapper in Paris was the name of her special. And continuing to capitalize on her success, because this is like her hot moment, she accepted a film role in a, in a movie called Vibes. Yeah, Vibes. Have you seen it? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I have not. So she plays a psychic. Is, does she do a good job? Yeah, she does great. Okay. I, she's actually a pretty good actress. And she also has a, a song on the soundtrack called Hole in My Heart. And it did okay in the US, but weirdly well in Australia. Isn't it funny when you look into stats like that where yeah. certain bands just become like Hasselhoff in Germany, you know, they yeah. just become mega hits somewhere and it's really weird. And this was like number eight. And so, you know, all of these Australians have like weird childhood memories of like singing and dancing to Hole in My Heart. Okay. <laughs> so the film starred Julian Sands, R.I.P. Oh, Julian Sands. And Jeff Goldblum. It was not a success. And I guess it it's gained since a following. So. Yeah, it's got a little bit of a cult following. Just because it has so many big names. But I think it was pretty poorly received at the time. Yeah. Well, we're going to kind of start to round out the 80s here. Mm -hmm. And we will get into what she did post 80s. But this is really, this was the bulk of what we wanted to talk about. Just because it was such a wild time. Yeah. And such a crammed and insane period of her life where I, i've still got a lot to go <laughs> yeah we, well that's the funniest part you know this is every time we talk about people i remember when we covered depeche mode recently and we realized that after the 80s their oh. careers only got bigger so how it was many actually, parts was that that was two parts oh i thought it was like no. four. <laughs> no i'm glad that we you know some of these other ones we we were able to cram into one yeah kate bush millie yeah. vanilli like those are um, Weird Al was a tough one to cram into one, yeah. but but we did it. One and done. One and done. But 89, um, you know, we'll, we'll round it out in the final year. She put out uh, her next album, which was called A Night to Remember. It was released on May 9th, 1989. It did get one top 10 hit. Uh, I drove all night. Okay. But that was about it. And uh, compared to where she had been earlier in the decade, she refers to this album as a night to forget, not Aww. a night to remember. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was just kind of didn't didn't quite have the magic and, and the audience that her earlier albums mm -hmm. did. But that wasn't going to slow her down or anything. And she was ready to head into the 90s and and get going. I'd say some of the important things to note getting into the early 90s with her was in 91 she got married to actor david thornton he's been in a ton of like tv shows and stuff like that and then in 93 she released her fourth album called hat full of stars didn't do, do so well either so it was interesting because she at this time this is what i'm learning as we were reading about her is although her album sales were not what they were when she was this monumental pop star. Right. The critics still really like appreciated her music. And yeah, she's great. She yeah, what she was doing was great. It's just that she didn't she was no longer putting out stuff like Shebop and Time After Time. She was putting out way more, like we said, mature music that 
was kind of starting to reflect her age and her mm-hmm. experience. And so the critics really were enjoying it. It just didn't have the record sales to go behind it. So I would I note yeah. that to kind of defend her a little bit because on the surface, it would seem as though she's kind of like a has-been and now she can't get back to where she was. But I would say it's the opposite, is that she's just finding now her kind of career as a musician yeah, going like forward. Like her real audience, yeah, too. Yeah, because you cannot sustain that level yeah. of success. Well, she's aging out. And think about what's happening in the music world at this time. She's oh, yeah. not a part of it at yeah, all. Yeah, she's not a grunge artist no. or anything like that. She's definitely not doing gangster rap, so... No. But... She's also um, not struggling too much because in 93, she's still acting. She had a role on Mad About You and won an Emmy. Yeah, she's almost at an EGOT. Almost. So as of now, she would have a Grammy and an Emmy and we'll keep going from here. Yeah. She's getting closer to an EGOT. I don't know if she can get the O. I wouldn't put it past her. Okay. We'll see. Anyway, so yeah, she won. She won an Emmy in 93. And then in 97, she gave birth to her son. That was a big deal. And she released yeah, probably. her... probably. Well, kind of. <laughs> to her. And Ugh. she released her fifth album, Sister of Avalon, again, like critically acclaimed, but just not not a huge success on the charts like her earlier stuff. And uh, the last thing I kind of wanted to mention in the 90s was she did make an appearance on The Simpsons as herself. Oh, yeah. So she's like a cultural, you know, icon. Of course. What we're not talking about is behind the scenes. And you'll get really into this as we get into the 2000s. Yeah. Is her real legacy beyond music? Anybody who knows anything about Cindy Lauper is her activism. Yeah, she has a lot of causes, and they were really starting up in the '90s, where she was taking up a lot of issues, and then they were starting to solidify at this time, yeah. where she was going to not just talk about things and use a platform, but like really try and make some things change. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the part of her story that's pretty fascinating later in her career. Yeah, Cindy has a real legacy of philanthropy, and it, it is around this time that she begins using her fame to draw attention to various causes. Like, it's it's kind of slow and scattershot sometimes, but she has a few things that she really commits to, and I'll, I'll kind of end with that. Um, but we'll get to more of them, I guess, as we come forward. But I don't think we actually can know how much good she has done, because we know the things that she puts her name to, but I think she's doing a lot more behind the scenes than we realize. Yeah, I would say so. And she's, to her credit, unlike some celebrities that just do sign a check and then go back to doing what they're oh, yeah. doing, she really is on the ground marching side by side for all these causes. Yeah. And I think that that's really commendable. And uh, I love when we research people and find out they really do have a good heart and they're trying to do something with the success and their voice versus just cashing in and then going away. You know, she, she really has given it her all. And I think that that's going to be when all is said and done. Yeah. She put out a couple really killer albums, but I don't really think that that's what she's going to mainly be remembered for in the grand scheme of things. No. So kind of starting things off in 2001, she took part in a performance called women in rock or girls with guitars. I think, (laughs) I don't know. And the sales of that performance were released. Like the, the recording was released by, I think it was Sears and it was to raise funds for breast cancer research and 2004, I actually remember this one. She participated in Divas Live to <laughs> raise funds for the Save the Music Foundation. And I remember her 
talking about it because she felt very passionate about bringing music to students in the schools. In 2002, she released the essential Cindy Lauper and then a cover album titled uh, entitled at last. So that was released one 2002, 2003. And at last actually sold over 4 million copies and got her yet another Grammy nomination. Yeah, that was actually a really successful album. It was a bunch of jazz standards, mm-hmm. like a lot of classics that she covered. She also continued to act and appeared on the TV show Queer as Folk and made her Broadway debut in the show uh, The Three Penny. And she was also on an episode of, and this is like personally special, The Backyardigans, <laughs> which <laughs> one of our ch- children really, really loved. <laughs> yeah, she did a lot of interesting stuff. I think it's later, but I think she even put a song on like a Rugrat soundtrack and stuff. So <laughs> You know what, though? You have kids, and it's funny how the second you have kids, all of a sudden you find yourself being wrapped up in saying yes to children's programs. Totally. In 2006, she was inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. She released Bring Ya, Y-A, to the brink. Okay. Interestingly, she went with the full original spelling of the, not T-H-A. Okay. Bring Ya to the brink in 2008. This is her sixth studio album. And then the same year she went on the True Colors tour. She also did a lot, uh, like really a lot of performances in which she appeared alongside other famous artists. It's just like out of control. Yeah, a lot of duets. And she also, you know, starting with her first album became also an icon for kind of the gay community Mm -hmm. right away. And that... It started with her just being kind of a, an icon, but this is where she really kind of steps it up big time. Yeah, so we're getting into that. She's also working with like people like Nellie McKay. She was on her album, Pretty oh, Little Head. Oh, yeah, that's Head. right. Yeah. yeah. She, in 2010, and I'll get back to 2008 here in a second. I'm just going to skip through these little... Yeah. It's It's little bitsy pieces she's on the celebrity apprentice oh okay it's a dark time yeah dark t- and nobody knew quite how bad that would go <laughs> but she got sixth place her seventh album memphis blue was released in 2010 and was number one on the billboard blues albums for 14 weeks jeez yeah i didn't even know that and she also got another grammy nomination <laughs> In she two, got quite a few. In 2012, she appeared on the 100th episode of WWE Raw in a memorial <laughs> segment for Captain Lou Albano. Of course, she's still involved. <laughs> and then in 2012, she also performed at Betsy Johnson's four-decade retrospective fashion show, which is amazing. Yeah. And she also released her memoir. It's called Cindy Lauper, A Memoir. Oh, wow. It's a real it was creative title. A New York Times bestseller. So hopping back in time just a bit, I want to talk about the True Colors Fund that yeah, you were kind yeah, of hinting big, at. Yeah, that's a big thing. So when she was a new mother, she started getting all of these messages from her fans who obviously had a connection to the True Colors song. It's like an LGBTQ anthem. And she was realizing that there's a connection between uh, LGBTQ individuals and the homeless population. And she became aware that up to 40% of the homeless population identifies as LGBTQ. Um, So that's a huge thing for her in her mind. And the wheels began to turn. And she noticed a hole between linking the homeless population that serves um, the LGBTQ LGBTQ community uh, to the services they need. So there was like a a gap 
And she created the True Colors Foundation to sort of fill this gap or bridge this gap. And they provide free training to various service providers across our whole country. Free training. I think that's really important to to take note of. And they just do a tremendous amount of advocacy work. Like, it's such a huge foundation. And there's a whole bunch to it that we really can't get into here. But I strongly recommend you go look at their webpage and see what they're doing. It's yeah, it's really it, it like I mean, it gave me goosebumps when I was reading through that page. I was just like, oh, my gosh, she's so amazing. And it's not just her. She has this enormous team of people who are just so passionate and she's using her fame for like real change. Yeah, I think what's impressive, though, is how active and successful her organizations are but she's not she didn't stop making music during this time she's still being (laughs) so successful what blows me away is when these artists have these later successes in their careers you know it's not they they have still so much to offer yeah i mean this was you're talking up to around 2012 just at that time going into 2013 was one of the biggest moments in her entire career, which is she wrote the score to the Broadway musical Kinky Boots that was based on this 2006 film. And that became a massive runaway success and was nominated for a ton of Tonys. Oh, yeah. Guess who got one? (laughs) Miss Almost Egot herself. She's just egged. Yep, so she got a Tony for Best Original Score for Kinky Boots, and that just kept going and going. I mean, I think she also ended up getting a Grammy because they did a a recording, a cast recording, and that won a Grammy. And so Kinky Boots became a later career legacy of hers because... She had, she did all the music for it. It was a massive success. I watched her talking about working with Harvey Firestein because mm. he's the director. It was so cool to, <laughs> to like get a little insight into their relationship. Yeah, it's um she just had such a fascinating career. And then she's, you know, continued to do TV appearances and shows and concerts and everything else. And in 2016, she released another album called Detour. And this is interesting because in staying with her brand of constantly changing, mm-hmm. this was a country album <laughs> and it did really, really well as well. So wow. uh, she's just always ducking and dodging and moving and zigging and zagging and doing really well. She at this time also got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So, I mean, Things are going pretty well. And I just like to bring it back to reminding people that while she's doing all this, writing Tony award-winning Broadway scores and winning Grammys, she's also this advocate. You know, she's like the grand marshal at gay pride parades and stuff. Like, she is so involved in the communities that she loves. Well, and then she has this whole other thing, which... I thought was funny, but then I started researching it. So she is a spokesperson for some uh, medicine that helps people with psoriasis. And I was like, oh, this is the end of her career. No, it's not. You know what? She has psoriasis, which is an insane issue to deal with. It's a skin condition, autoimmune related. And she has it, was trying to hide it 
and then eventually realized that by speaking out about it, she might help people who also suffer from psoriasis and feel insecure or aren't aware of treatments available. So she is really outspoken about it now. It's just kind of a random thing, but she's just again saying, you know what, I... I can help people by drawing attention to this cause. So she does. Yeah. And that's what she's been up to. I think um, currently she's working on finishing up another Broadway musical for Working Girl that had started, but then COVID and quarantine happened and kind of put the hold on that. But I think she's getting back to that now, doing Mm. all the music for that. And there's just no slowing her down. And what I love is that she's so involved. But when you hear her talk, she's got that thick New York accent. It just cracks me up because she's such a character. But, you know, what a interesting story she's had. Obviously, we just condensed it all into an hour. But to just blast off into, you know, some crazy level of success and then quickly realize that was its own moment in time. And now what am I going to do from here on out and just completely navigate it so smooth and professional and just keep doing the music that she loves and being really kind of true to herself. That's what I I think is interesting to me is even when I hear interviews with her now, I listened to one recently. She's just, she's really the same person. She's Mm -hmm. never really compromised who she is. It was never an act. It's just, it's just who she is. It's Cindy Lauper and it's take it or leave it. But I mean, if you're into what she's doing, it's really, um, it's really rewarding to to dive into her discography. And yeah, you're not going to get repeats of of She's So Unusual, but you're going to get a really amazing voice yeah. singing some everything from jazz to blues to country to <laughs> everything. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, she's an artist. Why would she repeat earlier success yeah. onward and upward? Yeah. So that's Cindy Lauper. I think it was really fun to learn a little bit about her. And For sure. Yeah, if you're not as familiar, maybe you learned something. Or if you thought you knew a lot, maybe you learned some more. Or if you're just a fan and thought, oh, man, I haven't listened to, to an album of hers in a while, put it on. Because mm-hmm. it's a good reason to, to dust off those old records and check them out. Um, they hold up. I really, I listen to her first two albums a lot still. I mean, yeah. they're really great albums. Or if you haven't, go listen to some Blue Angel. Yeah, go jam some Blue Angel. Why not? Uh, Well, that's it for this episode. Hopefully everybody enjoyed a look at Cyndi Lauper. Um, As we mentioned earlier, thank you for being patient with us as we recovered from the flu. And because this is a week late, we will be following this up next week with our Christmas special. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, we got one for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're excited about this one. Yes. Um, I don't know. I hope I think... Knowing our listeners, I think they'll be equally as as excited. There's no way they won't be. Yeah, they will be. Okay. Okay. Well, we will see you next week for our Christmas episode. As always, if you like what you hear, you can rate, review, and subscribe. Best thing you can do is just tell people that you think might like our show about us. Um, You can check out all our back episodes at lasergraves.com. And if you want to follow us, we are on Instagram at lasergraves. So we will see you next week for for our holiday episode. Until then, um, have a good time. Bye. Bye.